Live big people, have a for, forgive big God. Aren't you glad about that? I mean, that's an amazing thing. And that's, of course, what enables us to be live big people. I want to suggest to you today, and I think it's true, that how important people are to you will determine how important relational health is to you. And in fact, will directly impact the value you place on forgiveness. I want to say that again. There's a direct relationship between how important people are to you and how important relational health is to you. And in turn, how directly, importantly you value forgiveness. I want to submit to you that people and relational health are infinitely important to God. And so we want to uh, look this morning at the question that um, we didn't get a chance to look at the last time I was with you. How has the Lord forgiven you? In, in the Word of God, in Colossians chapter 3, I, wa- I would ask you to turn there, but and we're going to look at that text in a few minutes, but it says, Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, or, ha- or, has for- or the- as the Lord forgave you. I, I want you to know that, um, that this is placed and framed in a, in a commandment, in an imperative. Uh, God is not giving us a suggestion here. He is saying to us, this is what it would be to, to be a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what your life will unpack like. This is what it will look like. You, you'll bear with each other the grievances you have against one another and you'll forgive as the Lord forgave you. In Colossians chapter 3 is a text that we looked at last time and I just want to catch up on a couple of verses there and and then launch out into the deep this morning in God's word. In Colossians chapter 3 verse 12 it says, therefore as God's chosen people, that's an amazing thing, holy, in other words set apart, ...to accomplish great things for God and dearly loved. Now here are a series of imperatives. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. When we're thinking about this topic of bigness, living big, of uh, the abundant life of Jesus Christ, uh, again, I want to make a a kind of platitude statement, and and it is this. This forgiveness may be the major pillar of bigness. When we're talking about live big, I'm not so certain that this isn't the the centerpiece, that this isn't the, the center pillar of what it means to be a live big person. Forgiveness. I think it might be... Uh, possibly the hardest uh, of the characteristics that God has placed with, enabled us to accomplish, and that is forgiveness. And, and I want to start out this morning by explaining to you why I believe God chases forgiveness. It's significantly important to him after his glory, or in fact, encompassed within his glory, or in other words, what really matters to God, it seems to me, is that the most important thing to God in terms of the creature world of humans is that avenues of relationship are fully open. In other words, the question that that God sends out is, is how available are people to have an unobstructed relationship with God? 
God is about relationship. Uh, By the way, his creation expanded the orb of God's uh, relatedness. Because from eternity past, uh, God, of course, related within the Trinity. And when he created human beings, he expanded the orb of his relatedness to include his creation. And in particular, the apex of his creation, which are human beings. In fact, the joy of the garden... I'm going to invite you to turn back to to Genesis chapter 3 and we'll only take a look at a little tiny bit of a spot there but but we're going to spend some time in this particular area in the Garden of Eden. In in Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 we find there that the joy of the garden was communion with God. It, It said the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. I mean, think about it. The original design, the purpose in creation, God was to, to walk with man and with women. They would, they would know him face to face. He would walk in the garden with them in the cool of the day. And presumably, of course, to take advantage of, of his purpose, to commune with his creation called man. <clears throat> but in, in the particular situation there, of course, you know it's in, in what's embedded in this particular uh, story is that that uh, man and woman, Adam and Eve, have, have rejected God. And, and then God asked the first question that we ever find in the scriptures. He asked the question, where are you, in verse 9. Because God is about relationship. God is about pursuing a relationship. And then when we turn and we go all the way to the end of the Bible, we realize that, that the joy of eternity is communion with God. I'm particularly taken by... Uh, the very end in Revelation chapter 21 verse 3 and just before there it's, it says there that from the throne of God with a loud voice it, it's, it, he speaks out with a, a victorious joyful voice about real, what really matters to God and he says there now it's almost as if the town crier you know who speaks forth hear ye hear ye so all the peoples can hear Now the dwelling of God is with people. It's like the final climactic realization of God's purposes. Now the dwelling of God is with man and he will live with them as he always wanted to do. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And when it says that a loud voice comes from the throne. When the creator God who spoke the universe into existence speaks this out. I can't even imagine the thunderous sound of that. And I'm kind of thinking that we may get to hear a rendition of that. When we get there in Revelation chapter 20, I think God's going to thunder that out from the throne. So I'm looking forward to hearing what that's going to be like. Now the dwelling is God's victory cry. And the Apostle Paul, of course, reminds the Ephesians in the middle of the Bible, sort of, that his intent in him or Christ and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. And then when Paul wrote to the Corinthians to encourage the church when when their friends and family were dying around them, and he says to them, if this earthly tent we dwell in is destroyed, we have a heavenly dwelling place. And this is 
the purpose of God. And it is his purpose in which he gave us the spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Which is that we would dwell in the presence of the Lord forever, relating to him for all eternity. And so the centerpiece of of, of God's glory and what he's all about is this relationship within the Trinity that he expanded to include his creation called mankind. God is about relationship. And it is through avenues of relationship that we know God. And those avenues that he set up, of course, is Jesus Christ, who, who, who came to, to show us the Father, who came to show us who God is. And on behalf of his Father, he came here and that he might be received and welcomed and that he would, might create around himself a family that we call the family of God or God's family. It's about relationship. And, and it says in the Word of God in Romans chapter 8 that the Spirit himself testifies to our spirit that we are children of God or God's children. It's a relationship statement. And of course that is through the written communique that God has given us about himself and who he is. And, And as we read God's word and our hearts resonate with the word of God, it's then that the spirit of God communicates with our spirit that we are God's children as we willingly embrace and receive and welcome the word of God into our lives. That's when the spirit is testifying to our spirit. You're in the family. You're related to God. God is is in relationship with you. And not only through that written communique, but then God has given us the language of conversation with God. And there's only one language with which we speak to God. And whether you're in this country or another country across the world, and that is the language of prayer. That's how we speak to our God. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 7, there's this amazing text that reminds us what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever what? We pray to him. And so there's this interchange of God speaking to us through his word, resonating with the spirit of God who is in us, dwelling in us. And we have this language of love back to the Lord. And the only language that we have is prayer. By the way, in some of the travels that I've uh, been privileged to do around the world, I've learned something about the the nature of, of, of prayer and how the significance of prayer in other places. In fact, in China... They don't want to hear you um, recite your knowledge of theology, of the theology of the gospel, and, and how you know that Christ died on the cross and all of that as your, as your symbol of Christianity or that you're born again. They want to hear the language. Uh, until, you can, until you can give them the language. Until you can pray. They want to hear you pray. It's like, no, no, no. Before you preach to us, sir, before you tell us the gospel, before, before you tell us you know the gospel, we want to know that you know Jesus. We want to know that you can talk to him in his language. And so there's this amazing relationship that we have with God that is real and vital and meaningful. Eugene Peterson, in his book, The Jesus Way, points out that Judas followed Jesus with his feet all over Palestine. But it never got inside him. 
Prayer is the way we get the following, not just the feeling, inside us. I think that's a very insightful comment. By the way, Judas stands in as the human example of what is wrong with the world of people. Judas Iscariot, the betrayal disciple, was an opportunist to the very end. He wasn't interested in a relationship with God. He wanted to rob God of a relationship in favor of personal benefits for himself only. And by the way, um, sin, the sin of rejection and rebellion of God's right to be creator and as creator, to relate to his creation and to rule as father, as God. I want to go back to the garden for a moment. And if your Bibles are still open to Genesis chapter 3, I want you to note verse 5. There Satan is having a conversation with Eve. And of course Adam was there as well. We find out in the text that he was there. So the conversation is to the first two human beings. And, and Satan says to Eve and Adam, for God knows... And God had said, you know, don't eat the fruit of, of this particular tree. And, and, and Satan responds by saying, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And I want to tell you for a moment as I unpack that verse, I want to show you that this is what Satan was really offering to, to Eve or what he's really offering to Adam and Eve. He was saying to them, in effect, eat this fruit and you can bypass God. In favor of self-rule and judgment over what is either good or right for you or evil and wrong for you. Set yourself up as the standard. This was the ultimate disconnection of a relationship with God moment. It was do this and you will have the freedom to be your own measure. And that's been the case now. If, if you were to pull your, your friends in your office or, or in your workplace, whatever it is, or in the retail sector or in the school or, or in your neighborhood, they've set themselves up, man, as the measure of all things. It's get lost, God. In effect, that's what, what Satan is really offering Adam and Eve, saying, get lost to God. You can do this on your own. You can be the standard. And if this isn't true, just ask around. Ask people, like, how do you make moral choices? How do you decide between right and wrong? Most people will tell you, well, I just, I just have my own thing. I try to figure out if it would hurt somebody or if I'll, I'll, I'll feel good about it or if I'll be really happy. And You know, I like to say to a person like that, you know what would make me really happy? Is if you took your wallet out right now and gave me all your money. Because I'm feeling right about that. I'm feeling that that's a good thing. Because if I'm the measure, right... I mean, think about it. Think about the, 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 the absurdity, logically, of, of this idea that, that man can be the measure of all things. We'll never get two people to agree on that measure. But that's what Satan offered to Adam and Eve. And, and um, the highest crime of the centuries is the rebellious, incomprehensible rejection of gracious love. I mean, think about it. Think about what Adam and Eve did here and set up for the world of people. To deliberately chase from one's life God and the life that he brings. To eject spiritual life and choose death. That's 
what in fact has happened here. Now, I, I don't, clearly Adam and Eve did not know the scope of the Pandora's box they were opening. But when Jesus um, stood before those audiences that would listen to him and offered a parable to try and get some sort of emotional grasp of what happened in the Garden of Eden, he used the parable of the prodigal son. And he said, if you, if you want to get some sort of understanding emotionally as a human being of what God encountered in the Garden of Eden and ever since, it's the story of the prodigal son. It's where this loving father who, who, who did everything and offered everything to his sons has this son who says to him, Father, I want you to give me my inheritance right now and I want to check out. Or in effect, and in the, certainly in the Hebrew culture, what that meant is if I'm going to get my inheritance... When, when is it that we get an inheritance? It's when someone dies. That prodigal son was saying, in effect, I want to check out, and more importantly, I wish you would check out. Because I want your money, and I just want to get out of here. I, I want the benefits, but I don't want you. And he leaves. And Jesus said, if you want to get some sort of understanding about the relational nature of God and how this all works, I, I want you to understand and just put yourself in that place and, and feel that. Feel to have your kid do that to you. It's get lost, Father. So what happened in the Garden of Eden and what has happened ever, every life since is, get lost, God, I can do this on my own. Thank you very much. I'll be the measure and I'll be the standard. Which, by the way, is really dangerous and is wrong. And to try and understand the fate or the description of that son. Jesus said the father, in describing the son who had left, says, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And I couldn't help but notice the parallel between dead and lost. You see, people don't really get it. They don't understand that in saying get lost to God, they're chasing life out of themselves. And when they lose their way from God, they, they are in this parallel equation. They're, they're classified as dead. And now, as he's describing the parable and the people are listening, they realize this son wasn't dead. He, was, he had taken the money and run. He was still very much alive. He says, no, no, he's dead. He's dead because he's lost from God. And then as you work your way through the text to try and get an understanding of the heart of the father. When he returns, he, he says that, that my son, he was lost and now he's found. But he was dead. And so instead of the gift of God, which is life. People have chosen the indebtedness of death. And, and this is no minor wounding of God. Like, oh God, you know, get over it. That's the impact and the power of that parable. This is a serious matter. And, and, and uh, the word of God says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, sin has to be paid for, in other words. It's demonstrated as a debt that we owe. And so when you, you add all your sins up, in a bill, at the bottom line, the word is death. Now, you all have had 
builds, I would guess. And, and you've seen what it looks like. They itemize all the things that, that you've... I, I don't look at all the things. I, like my eyes just go right to the bottom line. Lynn, is, she looks at every item. I, I really don't care about all of this. The big problem is this. It's the bottom line, is the problem. And, and the picture that is painted for us here so people can understand, so humans can understand the nature of, of salvation and lostness and forgiveness and, and all of that is. We have this big bill. And the bottom line says death. That's, that's what we're in debt to God about. So, so this seriousness of this situation is if you're not in a relationship with Christ, you owe God death. You have a whopping debt load of sin. We all do. So getting to the point with this as a backdrop this morning, getting to the point, how has God forgiven you then? When it comes to this place where we have all said, get lost to God, maybe not to his face, but, but that's how we were born and how we began our lives, get lost God. So, so when it comes to the understanding of that as the backdrop, there are two options for God. Either revenge or forgiveness. Those are the only two options available to him. Forgive or revenge. And in trying to understand the nature of God, in that same text in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son, he he gives this picture of the farmer and he says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one. Well, for me, it'd be like, well, 99% is not too bad. That's a pretty major passing grade, don't you think? But, it, but that's not a passing grade for God. God's heart is so committed to a relationship with you that, that if even one is lost, if even one is missing, he says there, you, you go out and you, you find that lost, where you go out after that lost sheep until he finds it. And then he says, to try and understand who God is, two times in the text, he races to people and says, I have found my lost sheep. I have found my lost sheep. Does this sound to you like a God who doesn't care about you? Who doesn't care to relate to people? Who is, is occupying himself in heaven in a distance? From a distance, Lord. No, no. This is a God who loves us and cares about us and is intimately, intimately desires to engage in a relationship with us. And so I want, I want to give you four quick characteristics of the, of the nature of this forgiveness so that we can understand. If, if God says to us by command, I want you to forgive people as I've forgiven you. If God says that as a command, then, then we've got to check out how God forgave us. Because how God forgave us is what he's saying you can do to forgive others. And the first thing that we need to know is is that that he's forgiven us according to his character. That's so important. The basis of forgiveness is not social, it's not humanitarian, it's not psychological, it's not mental health. It's theological. And I tell you that again, the basis of forgiveness is not social, it's not humanitarian, it's not psychological, it's not about mental health, it is theological. It's because that's who God is. 
It is the recognition of who, of, of who creator God is. That's the basis of forgiveness. It says in the word of God that God loved us in advance. God exists in a state of perpetual love. For God so loved the world. The world that rejected him. The world that said, get lost God. For God so loved the world. Why do you think he came back into the garden looking for Adam and Eve? They had already sinned against him. They'd already rejected him. And it was God who came pursuing them. Where are you? I want to have a relationship with you. According to his character, he's loved us in advance. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting or eternal life. Do you realize that we're not only loved in advance, but and because we're loved in advance, we're forgiven in advance. The prodigal, the interesting story of the prodigal son is that the father had forgiven the son even before he came back. It says when he saw him in a far distance, he was already, he was, he was already, his heart was already about forgiveness. He ran to his son. God is not trying to make forgiveness hard. God desires to forgive because he is a forgiving God. In fact, um, when Moses, I, I, want you to, I want to point out a text in Exodus to you, but when, when Moses came down off Mount Sinai and found the people were significantly involved in mischief and rebellion toward God by making a golden calf, saying once again, get lost, God. He had taken them out of Egypt. He'd rescued them. He'd taken them out. He'd provided for them. He'd given them food. And what do they do as soon as, the, as Moses takes off? They say, get lost, God. And so Moses was quite concerned because God was wanting to move the people on to another uh, journey, continue the journey. And Moses says, how can I know that you're going to go with me? And what's fascinating is, is God decides to unfold his character. He doesn't talk about what he's going to do. He tells Moses who he is. Because who God is guarantees what God will do. And so... Uh, Moses hears this, the Lord, the Lord, or literally the I am, the I am. It's, it's the Lord here pressing in, in our understanding that, that the one who exists, this is how the God who exists really is. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished because he's a God of justice. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. But this God is by nature, his character, maintaining love. And because he loves us in advance, he is a forgiving God. And by the way, this word forgiving here is a comprehensive forgiveness. It means removing wickedness or guilt and rebellion and sin. In other words, God is saying, this is how I am. Exactly how I am. I don't compromise it. I don't change. Uh, This is how you have to receive me because this is who I am. And so we're saying this morning, okay, great. That's how God is. But remember, God is telling me that I got to forgive like that. How, How am I doing that? Paul writes to the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 and says, For in Christ the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form, which is why we are, how we can be saved through Christ. And you have been given fullness in Christ. The character and nature of God 
that he expressed to Moses has moved into your tent. So uh, being a forgiving person is my new creature reality. My new creation reality. Uh, In fact, uh, forgiveness, by the way, is not something you can do on your own, but Christ can and will forgive through you. That's what this means. If I choose to refuse, I, I choose to deny that Christ is in me. Secondly, I, I want you to know that this forgiveness is costly. I, I suspect all over the congregation this morning, all over uh, what's going on in your lives, you're saying, wait a second, you know, this forgiveness subject really always bothers me because you have no idea how badly I've been hurt. And every time I read a text that says you've got to forgive people, I'm like, come on. That person? Do you have any idea how much they have hurt me? And I would suspect that that story goes on in great numbers in a congregation of this size. You don't know how badly I've been hurt. Now you know that God would never ask you to do something that you can't do. He would never command you to do something that you can't do. And it takes us to understand the nature of forgiveness. That that. Peter pointed out in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, For you know that it was not with perishable things that, such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. When we're talking about cost of forgiveness, he says, do you have any idea how much God paid for you? In fact, it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, the the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Why is it all about blood? Because blood is the symbol of death. And remember what I told you, what was the bottom line on our bill? What do we owe God? We owe him death. And the only way that bill can be paid is by death. So so no amount of good works, no amount of good things that you could possibly do, no amount of listing all of the rights in your life would possibly take care of this because the only way that you can pay a debt of death is through a payment of debt. You know, when you get that bill at home and it it has $10 in the bottom line, uh, the bill collector isn't going to take five bucks. At least none of them that I know. And he's not taking monopoly money. And so you have this, this reality here where, where this setup where uh, it's a costly, costly forgiveness that God has given to us. Because you see, God required a mechanism that, mechanism that would retain his character as both just and merciful at the same time. Which is quite an amazing thing. You see, uh, we, we owe a debt of sin to God. And, and, and if there were no consequences to our disobedience, there could be mercy but no justice. But if there was only a death sentence, there was justice but no mercy. But, but, but in a most amazing way and with profound wisdom, which by the way is, is one of the, the apologetics for why I, I, I believe in God, is, is the utter complexity of the gospel message and the mechanism of salvation and its, its simplicity that can be embraced and understood and received by a child. That God could come up with a solution to this massive problem of how to be both just and merciful at the same time. You see, the the justice decision is that there would be a death sentence, and it says the wages of sin is death. But the mercy decision is that that death sentence would be forgiven. How can you do both things? 
Well, the amazing solution is to impute the death sentence on someone else. And that someone else, of course, needed to be sinless. And make that someone else, therefore, God himself. So the death sentence, justice, on Christ our substitute who died for our sins, the just for the unjust is merciful. And so at one fell swoop at the cross of Calvary, God causes both justice and mercy to occur that our debt may be paid in full so that our sins are done away with and the bottom line is erased and in its place is put life instead of death. Now, have you seen that, that Visa commercial on TV? Guy gets the bill. Seen that one? I kind of love it. I'm waiting for it to happen in my house. The Visa bill shows up and, and it's got all these itemized things on it and a big, big bill at the end. And then all of a sudden they all change to zeros. The guy's looking at it. That's what Jesus has done for us. We had this great big bill of sin with a bottom line that said death. And before our very eyes, it's all erased. And the bottom line is life. And, and you know, in the same way as a, as a person who would receive that visa bill would, would believe, yeah, yeah, I, owe, I had a debt. I had a debt that I really owed. But, but I've got this bill, and now, and now I'm acknowledging that now all I see is zeros. All I see now is, is, is life. I'm forgiven. The debt is paid. Pardoned. Now, now, is there any one of us who would say, send that back? No, send that back to the Toronto Dominion Bank. I, I, I'm paying the bill. I'm not going to accept that, uh, that, that I'm pardoned. No way. Howie, would you do that? I don't think so. You'd never send that thing back. Work with me here. You'd never send that thing back. You say, I'm pardoned. I'm freed. And that's the gospel message that Jesus Christ has died, has taken our sins upon himself, and now he sends us a bill that, that says, you receive this, you acknowledge that you were a sinner, you receive this, you, you trust by faith that I've, I've paid the bill for you, and, and your debt is paid. That's what forgiveness is all about. Christ shows injustice for himself. So, so, so in other words, now what about me? You know, when someone else affronts me, I can, do, I can choose revenge or I can choose forgiveness. Those are the options. The word of God says make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. Don't you revenge. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Love is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. No matter how much injustice I bear, it will always be less costly than what Christ did for me. But by the way, forgiveness costs. I'm not going to stand up here this morning and tell you, oh no, this is going to be a cakewalk. It's going to be no problem. No, it's costly. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. It cost him. It's going to cost you to forgive. Forgive us our trespasses. You notice what's put in the front line? As we forgive others who trespass against us. For, you know what? We ought to stop and pause a long time every morning on the first part of that verse. It'll change, radically change how you handle the second part of that verse. Forgive me, Lord, my trespasses. Me. I can be wronged and forgive too. Well, quickly, it's a complete forgiveness. 
God, by the way, the wrong party chose to initiate forgiveness. Romans 5, 6 to 8, we don't have time to look there, but God chooses not to remember, which means he chooses not to act against our affront to him. You're, you're sitting there saying, well, you know what, this forgiveness thing, do I have to forget? In order for it to be complete? I don't think God forgets. I mean, the, the scriptures say the scriptures say that uh, that He covers the ugliness of our sins, so He can't see it. I, even I, am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. You say, wait a second. It says He remembers our sins no more. Look at when I pray to the Lord and I say, Lord, remember me. I, I'm not expecting that I'm somehow reintroducing myself to God. It says, oh, oh, Rick Baker. Yeah, I'd forgotten all about you. No, I know. Really, it's. It, God doesn't forget about us. He doesn't forget about anything. He's God. What I'm saying is remember me in the sense of of, of act. Remember me and act according to your love and grace and mercy. And so when he says I don't remember anymore, it means he's not going to act against you. He's pardoned you. You're forgiven. That's what it means. It says he carries our sins away. Blessed is is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. It's not so much forgetting as releasing from the obligation to repay the debt. You don't owe me anymore. God says, I remember your rejection. I remember when you told me to get lost. I remember the acts of of rebellion and rejection. I remember all that stuff. But you know what? Christ died on the cross so that you could be pardoned and forgiven and you received that by faith. And you know what? I have forgiven you. Your debt is paid. I don't remember that anymore. I'm not going to act according to, to the, the debts you owed me. This is how God has forgiven us. Which means, doesn't it, that I'm able to be wronged, initiate forgiveness and treat the offending party as if the offense never occurred. I didn't say it would be easy. I said this is the way God has forgiven us. And finally, it's continual. And we'll close with this. Let me ask you a question in closing. How many times do you hope God will forgive you? If you're like me, every time. I hope he forgives me every time. But you know what? It's not so much hope for me as it is faith and trust and belief. Because I know he will forgive me every time. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. His pardon is continual. It's complete and it follows through as continual. He continues to forgive us. The disciples were having trouble getting their mind wrapped around this and one of them said, like, how many times do we have to forgive? Seven times? Aren't I great? Jesus said seven, seven times 77. Try, try, you know what, you know what Jesus was doing right there? He was reversing the kingdom of man. In Genesis chapter four, when Cain was all concerned about people taking it out on him, he said, Cain, if anybody touches Cain, he'll be avenged seven times. And then it gets to one of Cain's descendants says, Lamech, if Cain's going to be avenged seven times, Lamech's going to be avenged 77 times. And Jesus said, that's the kingdom of man. It's all about revenge. But the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God, disciples, is about forgiveness. Over and over and over again. Because that's who you 
are. Martin Lloyd-Jones, with this we'll conclude, has put forth an excellent statement. I say to the glory of God and in utter humility that whenever I see myself before God and realize even something of what my blessed Lord has done for me, I am ready to forgive anybody anything. Isn't that good? Our Father and our God, I pray this morning that you would um, challenge our hearts afresh with this matter of forgiveness. And Lord, as we, as we lift up our voices in proclamation and praise now in song, I pray that you will further embed this reality into our hearts. For your honor and glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That's what I really like about the statement where he says, Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And the reason I think that's so powerful and so impacting for many reasons, but one particular reason is it removes all of our excuses. And we have a whole lot of them for why we don't want to forgive. I mean, think about it. We say, I can't. Wait a second. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. In the forgiveness of the Lord, he has moved into your life. I'm able to forgive because of the new creation character that I am. It takes away that excuse. The excuse of, it, it, it hurts too much. It's too painful. You don't, know how, you don't know how I've been hurt. And we realize, forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. It cost him. His blood died for us. Expect forgiveness to cost you. It will cost you. I can't forget. Then forgive and live as if the offense has never occurred. Because that's how the Lord has forgiven you. And we say, I have to keep forgiving over and over again? (laughs) How many times do you want the Lord to forgive you? Forgiving is what we do because of who we are now in Christ. So let's bow our heads for a moment. And I just want to say in conclusion, and as we pray together, as the Lord puts on your heart that someone who needs to be forgiven by you, I want to encourage you this morning, I want to challenge you that this is the live big reality. Live big people forgive big because they have a forgive big God. And and you're not going to taste fully of the abundant life. You're not going to have the freedom and the joy and the release that you can have in Christ unless you forgive and are a forgiving person. And I'm I'm convinced that right right now across the landscape of your mind, God has put somebody, some name, some face. Would you commit to the Lord that you're going to forgive? Because you can, even though it hurts, and you can live as if it never happened, because that's what we do. And then his heads are still bowed. This morning, too, in our early service, put up their hands and say, I've never been forgiven by Jesus. And for the first time I've understood 
what Jesus has done for me and that I could receive release and pardon and forgiveness. Is there anybody here this morning who would slip up their hand and say, I want to, I want to receive that forgiveness from Jesus Christ? Anybody anywhere? Just slip up your hand. Our Father and our God, heads are bowed. We praise you and honor you as a forgiving God. You are an amazing God. A forgive big God. So I pray, Lord, that you would empower us to be what we are, forgiving people. And may you transform our community, our congregation, our community, and our broader community because we are forgiving people. It is our distinctive. The people of the kingdom of man is a place of revenge. The kingdom of God is a place of forgiveness. May our lives reflect the forgiving Savior who gave his life up for us. I pray in Jesus' name.